I'm Dr. Sterling. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and mom. Welcome to the Becoming Moms podcast, where I give you the step-by-step to optimizing your physical and emotional wellness in pregnancy so you can create a nourishing environment for your baby, your family, and yourself. The information shared in this podcast is intended for general education purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or another qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard in this podcast. All right, lovelies, let's dive in to this week's episode. Today, I am sharing part of my conversation with fertility specialist, Dr. Emily Seidler. Dr. Seidler was kind enough to come talk to us inside the Sterling Parents membership and demystify fertility issues, explain when you should see an infertility specialist and what to expect, what to look for. Just a great conversation all around. Members of Sterling Parents can access the full interview at sterlingparents.com and listen to the full audio from this interview on the Sterling Parents private podcast. Without further ado, let's hear what Dr. Seidler has to teach us about infertility. All right. Welcome to this video about fertility. We are joined with an amazing expert, Emily Seidler. She is a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. Welcome. Tell me, what what does that mean? What does it mean to be a fertility specialist? Yeah, I sometimes joke we're like the other REI, you know, not the outdoor store REI, but (laughs) right, (laughs) right. Reproductive endocrinology and infertility is a subspecialty of OBGYN. So we are physicians who did a four-year OBGYN residency and then subspecialized by doing uh, another three years of torture, i.e. fellowship, (laughs) to be subspecialist in anything involving uh, sort of reproductive hormones. Often that is sort of classified as infertility. We're kind of famous for our work in infertility space. Wonderful. Okay. So tell me, when is it time for someone to think about contacting a fertility specialist? Yeah, I think the, you know, sort of definition that we think of with infertility is if you've been trying for six months for a woman over age 35 or a year for a woman under age 35, but okay. sort of the no- more nuanced answer of that is whenever you think you need to see a fertility specialist, okay. you know, cause that can be different for different people. Um, that definition I just said is really limited to a heterosexual couple who, you know, have regular sperm exposure and have been trying on their own, but for LGBTQ community, that doesn't apply. A same-sex couple needs to see a specialist right away. A person who's thinking about becoming a single mother or single parent by choice needs to see us right away. Transgender for fertility preservation. And then of course, you know, complex PCOS issues, endometriosis, pubertal issues, you know, early menopause, it goes on and on. So if you're not getting what you need from your primary care, or really your OBGYN is such an important sort of person to triage these things and really lean on them to help you understand what sort of specialists you should see and if it's a reproductive endocrinologist and and when. Yeah. I think that's the important thing for, for people to hear is that we hear this rule. And I think, you know, with social media, a lot of people are hearing this rule. Okay. Six months, if you are 35, you know, if you're under 35, 
I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Six months if you're over 35, yeah. uh, a year if you're under 35, but that's assuming that you have no, there's no known medical problems, right? Like right. if you have, if you have PCOS, your OBGYN maybe may start trying to, to help you ovulate in order to get pregnant, but yeah. you know, typically like a generalist OBGYN is, is just, we're not specialists in fertility. So we might have some basic, you know, um, some basic knowledge about, okay, we can try letrozole or, a, you know, a, a, a medication to help someone ovulate. But um, really, if, if it's not working right away, then so even if you're under 35, but you have PCOS and your OBGYN's kind of running out of options, you may be going at three or four months, you might not be waiting that long. Or if you have you know, endometriosis. Yes. You know? And so I think that that's, that's important to remember that those rules don't fit for everybody and talking to your OBGYN or your primary care provider about getting a referral. Um, I'm sure sometimes people come to you and you're like, well, let's do a workup and you don't necessarily start going to IVF right away. Right. Absolutely not. And, you know, it's funny you say that I, I work at Boston IVF, which is a big sort of IVF clinic network in the Boston area. And because of our name, people are often freaked out thinking just making that appointment means you're committed to IVF. And certainly for some people, IVF is their first and best step for other people. They will never need to go to IVF. So okay. it's absolutely not something that just by seeing a reproductive endocrinologist, that means you need IVF. We're there for the evaluation, for the counseling, which is so, so important, even if you never seek treatment. Yes. And then we have other options for you. Absolutely. Okay, great. Now talk to me about, um, the evaluation phase of, you know, seeing a fertility specialist or just evaluating your fertility. Sometimes, you know, what I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think. Some people are wonder, okay, should I get my, for my evaluation done with my generalist OBGYN? Should I go to a special, uh, a fertility specialist to be evaluated? I'd love to just know more about that evaluation phase. Yeah. And even seeing now some of these companies like Modern Fertility, which mm -hmm. I see pop up all the time on, on my Instagram and yeah. similar companies that have at-home testing, we're seeing more and more access to care, which I love. Yeah. Um, and it's all about just getting that sort of information, evaluation, and then treatment if you need it, however that happens. So okay. I am open to it coming in lots of different flavors. And certainly I see some patients who they're getting a referral or they don't need a referral based on their insurance and they're going by, you know, a friend's recommendation yeah. and they are just like a clean slate and that's great. I'll order everything you need. If they have an OBGYN or PCP who started the evaluation, I will complete it. Or even okay. at home testing that helps get them in because, you know, something came up like a red flag or some, some worrisome test results that I can help, help them interpret. Um, right. So like a really basic evaluation for sort of a bread and butter infertility couple is going to involve hormonal testing, looking at ovarian reserve or sort of remaining quantity or egg pool, 
um, looking at anatomy, so uterine cavity evaluation and tubal patency to see if you know tubes are open, and usually a semen analysis um, to you know evaluate the sperm. That is sort of the basics, and then there are other things like preconception testing. Certainly, we're capturing you, so we want to optimize everything. Right. So like genetic carrier screening. Um, and just wanting to give you sort of the best chance at your healthiest pregnancy possible. Okay, that's wonderful. And would you um, would you say that people when you know I'm, I'm sure for a lot of people they're they're afraid to even see a fertility specialist because you hear about the cost mm -hmm. and the cost being so high. So, so, you know, what can you tell people about the cost of infertility evaluation and treatment and what their options are when it comes to cost? Yeah. So this is a big part of why I chose to do fellowship training and then stay on as a physician practicing in Boston and in Massachusetts. Yeah. We have some of the best fertility coverage with insurance in the country. Um, so there are a handful, now over 10 mandated states in the country, but certainly nowhere near where it should be in terms of mandating that insurance covers fertility care. So we have a ways to go and I could go on and on about advocacy and the importance of getting fertility uh, covered by insurance. But um, a majority of my patients do have coverage actually. And so um, testing should really always be covered. It's considered sort of a gynecologic issue. And then often my patients have treatment coverage. Now for patients who don't have treatment coverage, they often still will get testing covered again because it falls under sort of an OBGYN general umbrella. Um, but then there are options often for treatment, whether it's um, potentially enrolling at a study, um, enrolling, you know, buying a, an insurance plan um, at open enrollment. Um, sometimes there are packages in terms yeah. of, you know, X number of cycles for a, a lower amount. Um, and sometimes it is unfortunately paying out of pocket and, and you should be relying on your physician to guide you in terms of how good of a candidate you are, because that's really where those important right. and really transparent conversations come into play of, you know, is this likely to be successful sooner than later, or is this sort of a less than 5% chance and you need to go in eyes wide open, especially when you're spending a lot of money. I think that, you know, the reason I bring that up is because I really, I think that um, I think that before we put the the roadblock of cost in the way of of we shouldn't we, sometimes cost is a roadblock to, to doing IVF. That's just the reality, right? Like right, you right. you might be able to afford uh, afford some of the things that we can do to help you with your fertility before IVF. But IVF itself is is very expensive, and there's there's a reason for that. It's, it's yes. there's a lot of professionals involved. It's not just you know it's it's an expensive a lot process. of technology, a yeah. lot of technology. There so, are groups yeah. also that have, you know, grants, things like right. um, Resolve and um, and more local ones like in New England, Resolve New England. So there are um, a bunch of advocacy groups that sometimes do give grants, um, scholarships, yeah. essentially. Um, exactly. You're, you're absolutely there, right. There it's payment tough. plans and, and all and all all types of things. So I think that sometimes cost is a roadblock, but hopefully what I want people to understand is that it can be, you know, while it might not you might not completely avoid the roadblock of cost. I, I don't want it to be a roadblock before evaluation, which I think sometimes totally. happens where people just don't even go in and get evaluated because they're like, oh, it's too expensive. I can't afford it. Um, and you're right. Some insurance 
some insurance covers and some states mandate coverage of, of infertility um, treatment. So just getting more information before you, you make a decision about, you know, costs, I think is really, can be really beneficial. For sure. So we talked about, you talked about um, testing um, ovarian reserve. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me, what does that mean, testing ovarian reserve? And how is that, is that something that's related to our age? Yeah. So great question. This is one of the main topics I talk about the most with my patients every day. And certainly, you know, on Instagram, this is something I want to scream from the rooftops to have, you know, all people understand better and from a younger age. So ovarian reserve is this concept of remaining egg pool. So as women or people born with ovaries, we are chipping away at quality and quantity of eggs over time. We think we're born with all the eggs we're ever going to have. Very different than people who are born with sperm and they're making new sperms. Not fair. <laughs> Not fair. Huge eye roll. Yeah. Um, making you know new sperm throughout their lifetime. So this is where that biologic difference comes in and why there's this quote unquote biologic clock that's all this pressure is put on women. Unfortunately, it is biologic and it's having this, you know, finite number and quality of eggs. So ovarian reserve are a set of tests that estimate remaining egg quantity or egg pool. We really okay. don't have tests that tell us what your egg quality is like. We use age as the best marker of that. But okay. we know that for most people, egg quality and quantity go down sort of together over time and absolutely related to age. There's no specific age. People often come to me like, I'm turning 35 as if they're gonna fall off a cliff right. or something. It's more subtle than that. Um, so it's a steady decline over time. Certainly fertility peaks probably in our early to mid twenties. And then it declines over time, but it's really in our late thirties for most people that that slope sort of just speeds up. And then into our forties, uh, certainly things dwindle much more quickly. Right. So I always tell people the average age of menopause in this country is early fifties, 51, 52, yep. but that's when our egg supply has completely been exhausted and you've lost your period for over a year. So yeah. the reproductive window actually closes five to 10 years before that, which right. is why we think of most women losing the you know, potential to conceive using their own eggs in the early to mid forties. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, I, I, when you hear about a 45 year old with a spontaneous pregnancy, it's like, <laughs> it's shocking. <laughs> it's either not true, which is my, <laughs> that's, I know, right? that's my first, you know, the celebrity who's 45 or 46 and is pregnant. I'm like, yeah. that's donor egg. And, yeah. and I wish yeah. they would speak more openly. Truthfully, that, I do think that, I do think that Hollywood sometimes, um, has really skewed people's beliefs about fertility totally you know, because there are 50 year olds who are getting pregnant and, you know, you that's, know, that's, that's happening with help. That's happening <laughs> that's, with help. Yeah. It's happening with a lot of help for sure. And yeah, I hate to see that, you know, on one hand, uh, people deserve their privacy. And on the other totally. hand, I yeah. wish, you know, I wish they, some people would use their platform to speak more openly about this. Yeah. So when you think of, you know, the ability to conceive each month, let's say you just go out with your partner for the first time to try to conceive, um, what are your chances per month? And at age 40, it's 5% per month. And people are often really shocked to hear that, but I think it's an important like marker in our head yeah. um, because often I see patients who are in their late thirties, early forties, or even beyond who are just really surprised to hear those sorts of numbers. Yeah. Um, you know, that's 60 to 70% of your eggs or embryos are going to be chromosomally or genetically abnormal. 
in our early 40s, you know, yeah. it, it, it's pretty eye opening. And I think just to have that information ideally earlier and yeah. to know about that and do family planning, um, you know, and at least start to think about it sooner is, is usually beneficial. Pregnancy can be really hard. On top of all the physical stuff, there's the emotional impact of not feeling well and not feeling at home in your body for months on end. If you are having a tough time in pregnancy, you are not alone. I have so been there and I want to help you. Head over to thebestpregnancyclass.com to register for my free class, Four Ways to Make Your Pregnancy Easier and Healthier. This class is all about taking some of the stress and overwhelm off your plate. Head over to thebestpregnancyclass.com and pick a time to watch the class from the comfort of your own home. You deserve support, Mama. So in terms of testing ovarian reserve, um, do, what about when somebody's trying to decide, you know, sometimes it's difficult to decide when to start trying to conceive or, you know, um, if you, if you should wait. I mean, I think that that's something that a lot of people are facing, like, okay, ideally I would wait another two years to get pregnant, but I don't, you know, I'm in those that I'm in my mid thirties. Like, I don't know if that's, if that's, you know, a good idea. So do you have people asking for just fertility testing just to get an idea of kind of where they're at? Totally. Are you talking about like me personally? Because I totally identify with this person. <laughs> so <laughs> I've never been pregnant before. I know like I me and really... <laughs> you and a lot of my, my <laughs> friends who are also physicians who are, yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Physicians are famous for this, putting off childbearing because of our training in our career and also higher rates of infertility, actually, probably yeah. for those reasons and, and lifestyle reasons. But um, I'm really open on like my Instagram and, and social media that I froze my eggs in fellowship in my early 30s. And this was the reason why I was looking at, I'm not sure I even want kids. I definitely don't now. I don't know what the future holds, but you know, I drink the Kool-Aid and like, if I'm not going to freeze my eggs, who is? And I totally believe in that technology. Yeah. I know it's strengths and limitations. So I think, um, you know, I, I, I've talked to Natalie Crawford about this. We had, we were on a podcast together and we both joked that the time to like freeze your eggs and the time to think about it is like immediately when you just ask that question, because yeah, if you're asking that question, right, you you have this, you know, maybe I want to have kids. I'm sort of, you know, I'm now I'm in my thirties and yes, absolutely. Get that information, yeah. become empowered with what it can help you decide and egg freezing, you know, obviously big fan and I'm biased, but I think it's just an awesome option for a lot of patients to preserve their fertility. Yeah. I mean, I think that if, I think that if you can, if you're able, you know, if you're able to do it, um, I've just seen in, you know, both professionally and personally, it take so much pressure off of the individual, because unfortunately for those of us who are born with ovaries, it is, we, we, we have this, the, you know, this is in the back of your mind of like, okay, when, if it's just this heavy weight that, that, you know, we carry, um, when we're in our late twenties and in our thirties. And I've just seen so many people who haven't actually even used those eggs, but it took so much pressure off of them when they were figuring things out and allowed them to find a partner and not, you know what I mean? Like 
Right. You feel like you make, have to rush and find somebody to get pregnant with right away. Not make relationship time. decisions for the wrong reasons. And, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think that just the knowledge, if you're thinking, you know, you're trying to time when, you know, when am I going to get pregnant? Um, you know, just first the evaluation I think can be helpful. I know that there's, mm -hmm. there's some debate over the utility of some of these markers for ovarian reserve in the in the regular population right so we know yes. some uh, something like anti-malarian hormone which is one of the the ways y'all test ovarian reserve we know that a low anti-malarian hormone or we oftentimes abbreviate amh is associated with less success with ivf right but we don't necessarily have the data that it's that it's associated with lower fertility for just people who are trying to conceive is that correct 100 100 correct and such an important point. It's actually one of the other most important points I want patients to walk away from or, you know, today listening to this is that your AMH or your ovarian reserve in general does not predict fertility. Yeah. So for patients who get this testing before they've tried to conceive or thinking about egg freezing, thinking about when should I conceive, it does not predict fertility. Low AMH does not mean you're infertile. High AMH does not mean you're fertile. So it can be anywhere in between. And when you think about it, it makes sense. It is one facet of fertility. Yeah. It's like yeah. egg remaining egg quantity. It doesn't mean egg and sperm can find each other in the body, can fertilize normally, can move through the tube into the uterus, can implant and have- There's a lot more steps than just having There's an egg. a lot of stuff, yeah. a lot of stuff. So um, it tells you, are you likely to respond well to treatment? Would you have a good number of eggs if you did egg freezing or IVF? Um, and actually there is correlation between age of menopause and sort of timing and like how much time you have left in your reproductive window. So okay. for planning reasons, if you have very low AMH and you're thinking of waiting five years, you might not want to, or you might want to space your children a little closer together if you know you're right. low AMH. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think it's really important to remember that this is, we have pieces of information and we're trying to create a complete puzzle, but really... Yeah. Um, it's, it's a little bit like trying to find a crystal ball, right? Am I going to be able to get pregnant? Is, is this going to be a normal pregnancy? It can be really difficult. Absolutely. So talk to me if you, you know, you are, uh, struggling to, to get pregnant. Maybe it's, it's taking you longer than you expected. You're, you're, you're getting close to the, the six month mark. Is there anything that you think people should, you know, Things they should be doing when they're like right there on that border of maybe it's time to see a fertility specialist or their practices or their supplements. What should people be doing to maximize their fertility when they're on that cusp of maybe I need fertility help, maybe I don't? Yeah. So, and, and a lot of these lifestyle things are things you can start even before you try to conceive, like you're still have that IUD in or you're on birth control pills, you're trying to start optimizing things, you know, you're like really thinking ahead. Yeah. These are great things to do as early as, as you want. And they're not going to be surprising to anyone. They are like healthy lifestyle things that we should all be doing right. anyway. Um, so not smoking or using tobacco at all, um, minimizing alcohol, probably less is better, but you know, don't have to go crazy with that. A glass of wine right. here and there is reasonable. Um, you know, healthy diet, exercise, the diet thing always gets really funny. What does that mean? What's the perfect right. fertility diet? And I, you know, could 
go up against a lot of people who would disagree and have some perfect vegan diet or, um, you know, keto or lots of different stuff out there that can be really confusing. Yeah. And I would say if you're eating like some whole foods and good 80% of your diet is based on like meats and fruits and vegetables and, you know, shopping the perimeter of the grocery store, all those things like eating like right. our great grandparents ate, that's probably you're on a, a really good track. Um, but there's, there's no real perfect fertility diet and, and studying diet, as you know, is really, really difficult. Yes. Um, exercise, certainly. So all of these things that aren't surprising to anyone, making sure you're not on any medications that could be harmful to a pregnancy. There are certain medications like a retinoid Accutane, for example, certain antidepressants. Hey, no, no. Yeah. yeah. So we want to make sure you're not causing any birth defects and um, that you've been off certain medications for a reasonable amount of time before you conceive. Um, and this is why a preconception appointment yes. with, uh, you know, ideally an OB provider is, is so, so key. It's, it's interesting. I am a, I, I am such a huge proponent of the preconception appointment. And I hear from my members and my audience sometimes that they get pushback from either the doctor. I think it's a lot of times it's the front desk people at the, oh, wow. like, because a lot of people don't come in for a preconception evaluation, right. but just because it's not done commonly doesn't mean that it's, that's what we want. We want oh, people to come in before totally. they're pregnant so we can help them totally. optimize their health for pregnancy. Those are like so, our really type A patients were on top of it. We love it. We're like, yes, <laughs> let's so do great. some testing. Let's make sure that nothing's going to, you know, that an ovarian, you know, a 10 centimeter ovarian cyst isn't going to pop up when we do your first ultrasound. <laughs> like let's, yes. but, um, so I just want to say what, um, Dr. Seidler is talking about here about, you know, optimizing your health, even before you start trying to conceive, this is something you can do in conjunction with your primary care or your OB provider. And please don't let someone tell you that that's not necessary. It, it is a necessary, I mean, obviously it's not necessary because 50% of pregnancies are unplanned, but what I'm talking about is it's really like, it's nobody should be telling you that that's not normal or that you don't need that. Ideally, everybody would have some kind of preconception evaluation. So I just wanted to pause there because I've heard from so many people, like, because I talk about it all the time, people will send me messages and be like, hey, they, they acted like it wasn't a thing. And I'm like, no, it's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> it's and not just me. I kind of joke with my patients that they all get this preconception, you know, by definition, if they're struggling with infertility, we take that as an opportunity to also do preconception counseling and testing. So these, these are like the most optimized and teed yes. up pregnancies ever. And any patient can take advantage of that. I totally agree with your PCP, your OB, um, and it's a great time to check in. And mentioning medications, I mentioned yeah. antidepressants, mm -hmm. and I want to be clear that so many patients, especially you know, in and at the tail end of the pandemic, are on antidepressants and yes. you know medications that are helping with mental health. And if you are told that you just have to come off that with no discussion and no sort of back and forth, see another provider yes. because red that red flag like that yeah. that should not be it. And I can't tell you how often I have patients say, "Oh, I just thought I had to come off it," and I'm so so grateful to hear you say that's not the case. Um, yeah. Absolutely not. There are certain ones that are less good for pregnancy and others that we think are safer and we can absolutely help with in conjunction with your mental health provider to sort of transition you to safer ones, to talk about the risk benefit, to, to weigh all of these things, but healthy mom, healthy baby, like you yeah. come first hundred percent. Yeah. And I, um, for, for, um, 
Sterling Parents, we have a whole um, a whole discussion of this with Dr. Sarah Oreck. I don't know if you know Dr. Sarah Oreck. She's a reproductive psychiatrist who is, oh, she's wonderful. Awesome. Um, and so we talk about the um, medications for depression, anxiety from, you know, throughout the reproductive journey. And what a lot of people don't realize is that um, there's also, you know, we know that untreated anxiety and depression also impacts fetal development and pregnancy yes. outcomes. So this, this thing, you know, when, when a physician, if a physician tells you, you have to stop without a conversation, without discussing the risks and benefits, have to stop a medication for your mental health before you get pregnant or when you're pregnant, that is just, that's not, it's not, that's okay. just not the case. Yeah. So I'm glad that you said that. So for the, so what I've heard you say is that if you are, you know, really wanting to optimize your, the likelihood of getting pregnant when you're, you know, you're trying to conceive, or maybe you're getting closer to some of those, those cutoffs where you're thinking, okay, it's time to see a fertility specialist, that you should be really optimizing your overall health, um, exercising, um, eating a, a, a balanced diet of, uh, you know, whole foods. Is there anything else that, you know, beyond taking a prenatal vitamin, which of course we want everybody to do when they're trying to conceive, is there anything else that people should be doing um, during that time to increase their, their chances of getting pregnant? Yeah, so like you said, the prenatal vitamin with folic acid, I often add on vitamin D. Um, in terms of just timing things, certainly making sure that you think you're ovulatory, so you have like regular predictable cycles each month is a really good sign that you're ovulating. And then trying to time intercourse for those, you know, two to three days that are your highest fertile window. That is really important because certainly you can also, um, just have sex regularly once, one to two times a week throughout the month. Um, for other people, it's more helpful to time things. Some people feel that's like too clinical and want to stay away from it. But I think using something like an ovulation predictor kit, which you can buy, you know, over the counter or online. Um, I really like the no, I have, I have no, uh, conflict of interest or anything on this, but uh, no sponsorship, but the yeah. Clear Blue Easy Digital okay. is a really simple one. I often recommend the one that's just a empty circle or the smiley face. It's super okay. simple. Right. It's really, you know, foolproof. And you basically use it. I usually tell people cycle day one is considered first day of full flow of their period. And then start using the ovulation predictor kit around cycle day eight, eight okay. to 10, once a day, late morning. And once it turns positive, that's what you would consider positive OPK that you're about to ovulate in one to two days. So you can have sex that day, the next day, the next day. And then you've really optimized things for the month and any other time should be for fun, which is also still important. Yeah. I <laughs> keep your relationship in mind too. I think, I think people, I think that people forget that. Okay. So, um, next question, moving on to, okay, you are undergoing, um, infertility treatment and, you know, we talk about the fact that, um, particularly with IVF, pregnancies with IVF are, are, they're, they're different, right? Than pregnancies that are conceived without IVF, without, um, uh, assisted reproductive technologies, and there are increased risks, uh, associated with IVF pregnancies. Is there anything that an individual can do when they're undergoing infertility treatment to minimize risks in pregnancy? 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Becoming Moms. If you are looking for more support from me during your pregnancy journey, head over to sterlingparents.com to learn more about our membership. The Sterling Parents membership now comes with a private Instagram account where members can send me direct messages 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Pregnancy is hard. You deserve support. Head over to sterlingparents.com to get the best support available for your pregnancy.